Well, we are going to look at Isaiah 29, but before we do that, we're going to have a quick music quiz. Uh, I'm going to play two songs, and I'd like you to get the name of the song and the artist, if that's possible. It's the same artist for both songs. Great, super. Okay, so what was the first song? Kiss Me. Okay, well done. The second one? There she goes. That was easy. Who's the band? Ah, yes. Who was that? Is that? Ah, okay, great, Liam. <laughs> I didn't give him the answer before, yeah. So the, the band's name is Sixpence, although their, their, their full name is Sixpence None the Richer, which is a very strange name for a band. Does anyone know where the band's name comes from? Aha, okay, there we go. The, it comes from a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Uh, Lewis is speaking about doing things for God, And he addresses the popular belief that if we do things for God, God rewards us, and if we do bad things, he punishes us. And Lewis says this in his book, when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I'll tell you what it's really like. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does. And he is pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that his father is sixpence to the good of the transaction. He is sixpence, none the richer. And Lewis says this, Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. (laughs) The powerful quote. So God isn't looking for our good works or for our acts of devotion. What is it then that God desires? Well, in Isaiah chapter 29, uh, Isaiah tells us what God is looking for in our lives, as well as a couple of things that God is not looking for. So if you've got your Bibles with you, let's have a look at Isaiah 29, and we're going to read verses 13 through 24. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of human rules that they have been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us, who will know? You turn things upside down, as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? In a very short time, will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field seem like a forest? In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Once more, the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. The ruthless will vanish. The mockers will disappear. And all who have an eye for evil will be cut down 
Those who with a word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, this is what the Lord who redeemed Abraham says to the house of Jacob. No longer will Jacob be ashamed. No longer will their faces grow pale. When they see among them their children, the work of my hands, they will keep my name holy. They will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding. Those who complain will accept instruction. This is God's word. I think the key verse in the passage this morning is verse 13, where God says, These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I can think of no worse censure from Almighty God. These people come near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And you will know that this wasn't simply a problem during the time of Isaiah. Uh, 700 years later, Jesus would take these words and he'd apply them to the most religious people of the day, possibly some of the most religious people of all time, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of his day. He said of them, these people come near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And what about me? And what about you this morning? Would, would Jesus use these words of, of us? How does a heart move far away from God? Well, I, I think in the rest of these verses, Isaiah gives us four symptoms of a heart that is far from God. I guess this is one of those uh, sort of chicken and egg situations. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Does a heart far from God result in these symptoms, or do these symptoms result in time in a heart far from God? And the answer to that prob- probably is yes, <laughs> both. And, and so I'll be referring to both directions as we go along. This is a way that a heart far from God looks like, and these things draw a heart far from God. Firstly, then, a heart far from God results in empty religious ceremonies, or empty religious ceremonies lead to a heart that is far from God. Look at verse 13 again. These people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of human rules that they've been taught. Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, Similarly, Napoleon said, religion is excellent stuff for keeping common people quiet. Religion is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. Richard Dawkins said, religion is about turning untested belief into unshakable truth through the power of institutions and the passage of time. And John Lennon wrote an entire song in which he encouraged us to imagine a world without religion. But you know, there was one person who was far more scathing than any of the writers that I've just mentioned, and that was Jesus. Jesus was dead set against religion. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus spends a whole chapter denouncing the religious leaders of his time. And he ends the chapter by saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. On the outside, 
you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. God hates the outward form of religion without the inner reality of relationship. There's nothing wrong with religious ceremonies as long as they are a reflection of a real relationship with Christ. Then they're fine. But when they become a substitute for that relationship, when they stand in place of a real relationship, they're deadly because we look good on the outside and we feel good about what we do and we think we're safe when in fact we're lost. Very dangerous place to be. Religion can sometimes get in the way of a real relationship with God. I mentioned C.S. Lewis at the beginning of the sermon. For many years, he had real difficulty in becoming a Christian because of the religion of his childhood. Uh, his brother Warren says this about Lewis's finally becoming a Christian. He said, Clive's conversion was no sudden plunge into a new life, but rather a slow, steady convalescence from a deep-seated spiritual illness, an illness that had its origins in his childhood, in the dry husks of religion offered by the semi-political church-goings of Ulster and the similar dull emptiness of compulsory church during our school days. How many people can't identify with that even this morning? The ceremonies have to reflect a genuine relationship, otherwise they're simply dry husks. One day, the actor, Robert Redford, was walking through a hotel lobby, and a lady saw him and followed him towards the lift. And in great excitement, she asked him, are you the real Robert Redford? And he got into the lift, and as the doors closed, he said to her, only when I'm alone. Only when I'm alone. <laughs> he's only the real Robert Redford when he's alone. The Presbyterian minister of the 1800s, Robert Murray McChain, once wrote, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you know, when you pray or when you fast, don't do it in a way that others can see what you're doing. Rather, close the door and be alone with your Father. Empty religious ceremonies lead our hearts away from God. Secondly, pride leads to a heart that is far from God, or a heart from God is filled with pride. Look at verse 14. God says, Therefore, once more I will astonish these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. I heard about an Anglican minister who was preaching in India, and he was using an interpreter. And the first sentence of his sermon went like this. Our familiarity with this chapter, traditionally associated with Quinquagesima, must not cause us to neglect its profundity. The interpreter stood up and interpreted as follows. So far, the preacher has said nothing worth remembering. When he does, I'll let you know. I think that the kind of pride Isaiah is speaking about here is, is spiritual pride, and it can be found in a, a couple of forms. Firstly, our, our very theology can be a barrier to us knowing God. 
when we treat theology like all of the other ologies, biology, zoology, geology, we feel that we can place God under a microscope and examine him as we would a fish or a rock. We can subject him to various experiments, and we will say, or we can say with authority, how he will respond in consistent ways. But actually, theology is completely different from all of the other ologies, because in theology, we don't examine God. Rather, God examines us. There's nothing wrong in studying the Bible. There's nothing wrong about knowing the attributes of God or having a view on baptism. But, but our theology needs to be held humbly and on some non-essentials even loosely. We can't place God into a little watertight compartment and say how he'll always act because God has acted in history in various ways that we would never have dreamed of before. Sometimes we try and tame God. The author, Dorothy Sayers, once said that the church has very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, making him a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. But he is still the Lion of Judah. As C.S. Lewis reminds us in his Narnia books, he's not a tame lion, but he's good. Sometimes I, th I think we, 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 we feel that we know God and that we can control God. There's a sense of pride there. But there's a second form of spiritual pride as well that can creep into the more personal and practical areas of our lives. Those of us who followed Jesus for many years and have managed to avoid the so-called greater sins of the Christian life may begin to feel that actually we're a pretty good candidate for God. God is very lucky to have us on his team, as opposed to some of his more problem children, of which we could produce a list if necessary. But we need to have the humility to acknowledge that we don't know everything. We don't even know the depths of our own hearts and lives. And we can't come to church to hear what the preacher might have to say to other people. We need to listen for what God might be saying to me. When someone has the courage to come and talk to me about an area of my life that is of concern, to have the humility to listen and to accept, to see where they might be right. Isaiah warned us back in chapter 5, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And at the end of this passage, in verse 24, Isaiah looks forward to a time when those who are wayward in spirit will gain understanding those who complain will accept instruction. It's that humility of openness of life, both to God and to my brothers and sisters. But pride will always lead our hearts away from God. Thirdly, a heart far from God can be seen in practical atheism. I think that's what's described in verses 15 and 16. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he didn't make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? So practical atheism is where intellectually I believe there is a God, but practically, I live as though he didn't exist. I believe there is a God, but in my day-to-day -day life, I live 
as though he didn't exist. The New Testament addresses this in Titus chapter 1, where the Bible says of some folk, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. And verse 16 is, is so important because it outlines three lies that we must tell ourselves in order to become practical atheists. Firstly, in order to become a practical atheist, I need to deny God's holiness. By that, I mean his otherness. Isaiah says, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. In other words, I convince myself that God is just like me with my same weaknesses and faults and um, inconsistencies. God wouldn't mind if I did this just this once. He wouldn't really care. This won't upset him or offend him. I can just go ahead and do what I like. Secondly, in order to become a practical atheist, I need to deny God's power. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he didn't make me? In Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist exults in the fact that God knows everything about him. He says, oh, oh Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the reason the psalmist knows that God knows him is because of creation. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. But if I deny creation, if I deny God's power, then it becomes very easy to believe that God doesn't see and God doesn't care. And thirdly, in order to become a practical atheist, I simply need to deny God's knowledge. Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? It's so easy for me to do something and at the same time convince myself that God can't see. You know, if I close the office door, if I close my bedroom door, God won't see. He won't, he won't mind. And so to use theological terms, in order to be a practical atheist, we need to deny God's holiness, his omnipotence, his power, and his omniscience, his knowledge. Becoming a practical atheist will always lead my heart away from God when I deny his involvement and his love and his care in every area of my life. And then finally, greed for unjust gain leads to a heart that is far from God. Or a heart far from God leads to greed for unjust gain. I think that's what's been spoken of in verses 20 and 21. It comes in the section where God states uh, his intention to judge and destroy evildoers. Isaiah says, the ruthless will vanish, the mockers will disappear, and all who have an eye for evil will be cut down. Those who with a word make a man out to be guilty, who ensnare the defender in court and with false testimony deprive the innocent of justice. What was going on here wasn't simply injustice in the courts, but rather that God's people were being unjust in order to gain from those that, that they were being unjust towards. The prophet Ezekiel speaks about this in, in his prophecy, where God says to Ezekiel, my people come to you as they usually do, and they sit before you to listen to your words, but they don't put them into practice. 
With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. What happens when our hearts are far from God? Well, we begin to substitute other things for God. See, all of us were created with this God-shaped vacuum within our hearts. And many people try to fill that with different things. Maybe we're not greedy for money, uh, but it's not only that. There are other things with which we can fill our hearts, whether that be pleasure or power or position. And these things then in, turn, in time displace God, and so our hearts become far from Him. So empty religious ceremonies, pride, practical atheism, greed. These are, are symptoms of a heart far from God. When we engage in these activities, our hearts move far away from Him. You know, I don't think that too many of us wake up one morning and think, you know, today I'm going to move my heart away from God. For most of us, it's a gradual process as we allow other things to take God's place. Well, we spent quite a lot of time looking at the problem in these verses. Is there any solution? Well, we, we might have spent a lot of time on the problem, but I think that's important because recognizing and acknowledging the problem is the first step uh, towards healing. You know, once the doctor has found the diagnosis, she can start the treatment. So now that we have our diagnosis, a heart far from God, what is the solution? Well, actually, it's very important to see that the solution to this problem isn't necessarily something that we do. It's not four simple steps to turning back to God. Rather, in this passage, it's about something that God is going to do. He speaks about people whose hearts are far from God, and then he says, well, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to do something. Verse 14, therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. What God's people can't do for themselves, God is going to do for them. What is this wonder of which Isaiah is speaking well, as we saw a few weeks ago, all of the stories in the Bible are part of a much bigger story, the story of Jesus. And these verses also point us towards him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes these verses and applies them very specifically to Jesus. Listen to what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strengths. God's greatest wonder was seen in the Lord Jesus Christ and supremely at the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I refer, infer rather from 1 Corinthians that the solution to a heart weighed down by empty religious ceremonies and pride and greed is not more religion. That's not the solution, but rather a relationship, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I think there are two things that characterize this relationship. There are other things that we could look at in these verses. But God himself mentions these two things towards the end of the passage. Firstly, a true relationship with God is characterized by humility. Verse 19. Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord. The needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. As we saw last week, it's not those who are rich and strong and powerful who can easily receive anything from God because their hands are full already. It's those who are humble and who recognize their need for God who can receive from him. And secondly, a true relationship with God is characterized by hallowedness. If you look at the second part of verse 23, they will keep my name holy they will acknowledge the holiness of the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. So keeping God's name holy means recognizing who he is, that he is God. That's what Jesus taught us to pray right at the very beginning of his prayer. You know, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Apostle Peter speaks about this in 1 Peter chapter 3, where he tells us, but in your hearts set apart Christ, as Lord. We spoke a moment ago about practical atheism and how it leads to a denial of God's sovereignty. Well, if we want to have a relationship with God, then our perspective needs to be exactly the opposite, that I acknowledge God as holy, completely different from me, greater than I could ever perceive, a God who fills the universe. I acknowledge his power, that he is my creator, and not just my creator, but the creator of the universe. And I acknowledge his knowledge, that he is far greater than I could possibly be. As Isaiah will remind us a little bit later on in the book, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, putting all of those characteristics together, a, a true heart relationship with God takes place where I recognize who I am, poor and needy, and I recognize who God is, Lord and God. The Roman Catholic priest, Henry Nowen, uh, put it this way in one of his books. He said, To pray is to walk in the full light of God, and to say simply, without holding back, I am human and you are God. At that moment, conversion occurs, the restoration of the true relationship. A human being is not someone who once in a while makes a mistake, and God is not someone who now and then forgives. No, human beings are sinners, and God is love. So just a question for us this morning. Where are our hearts in relation to God? Remembering that for the Israelites, the heart didn't refer to emotion, but rather to will, a place of decision and action. Do our religious ceremonies, our coming to church, 
uh, singing the hymns, uh, meeting around the communion table, uh, meeting in small groups, does that reflect a genuine relationship with Jesus? Do we come to God this morning humbly, seeking after Him and what He may desire for our lives? And will we allow what we have said and done here this morning to go with us into the week, into the very ordinary, everyday aspects of every part of our life, not live as if God doesn't exist? Will we allow God first place in our lives before anyone or anything else?